0: But the title of my message uh, is based off of a book uh, written by Philip Yancey. And so this is one of the first books I read as I began ministry, and it really shaped the way and changed the way that I saw uh, ministry. Uh, And it's titled, What's So Amazing About Grace? So we often speak of grace, yeah? But do we really understand what grace is? And more importantly, do we truly believe in this thing called grace? Do we really take to heart when we deal with the word grace or this idea of grace? And more importantly, do we show in our actions, in our lives, do we show this ideal of grace? And so for the next four-part series that I will preach on, I hope that I can show you and and define to you what grace really is. What it should look like, what it shouldn't really look like, uh, and more importantly, why we as Christians are people that can and must reveal exactly what God-given grace to the world and what the world is searching for is. So I want to show some pictures to begin. um, And just kind of, you know what it is, and just say, I don't know if you can see it very well, Uh, what does this look like? Thanksgiving, but what are they doing? They're giving? They're giving grace. I heard one person, everyone was like giving dinner, right? Okay, Uh, they're giving grace. Okay, what about this picture? What is, uh, this is kind of hard. It just looks like a bunch of magazines, okay? It's a bunch of magazines, but when you get like, you know, first few magazines when you first subscribe, or what are they called? Not subscriptions. Do you guys a grace issue? Do you guys have heard of? Do they not send out magazines anymore these days? Maybe not. Okay. So it's a grace issue of a magazine. What about this? This one? No, 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 no. It's called persona non grata. I'm pretty pretty much saying that wrong. But do you guys know what that is? Uh, I was I would be surprised if someone knew what this was. Right. It's a person who offends the U.S. government by some act of treachery. Okay. Um, it's proclaimed a person without grace. That's what it means, okay? Um, what is this? I mean, it's on the... grocery. who said groceries, right? <laughs> Gratitude, right? Okay, and what about this one? Grace note. Oh I heard it. Grace note, okay, and What is it? You can barely see that. Did someone say Bach? Okay. Amazing grace, okay, so Uh, All of these things that I've just shown you on the screen have something to do with grace, right? But what exactly does grace mean? And today, for this part of the series, I want to define to you what grace is. But instead of simply just giving a definition and ending the sermon here, which I could easily do, uh, I feel like the best way to explain grace and to understand grace is through illustrations, through a few stories, to help put this into perspective, okay? Okay. So the word grace, we use it so easily, and we use it so often, right? The word grace is something that comes out of our mouth like we say our names, right? But we, do we truly understand what grace is? Apparently, if we use it so often in our churches, and you may hear me preach about it or say it in my prayers, grace must mean something significant, right? There must be some kind of deeper meaning or something important about it that we need to understand. Um, clearly, the word, okay, the word grace okay, is used by millions of people, especially in the song Amazing Grace. We hear the song all the time. We know the melody. Um, it's a truly significant word, grace. However, like a dying star right, that has its final burst of pale light and then is engulfed by a black hole. Right, grace, in the same way, it dissipates in a final burst of pale light but then is engulfed by this black hole of something called ungrace. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. So you see, grace is a wonderful thing that we can find in our churches, and our communities, and through people. But unfortunately, I feel like grace is not found enough in our churches. There seems to be a shortage of this thing called grace in our church. So author Stephan, uh, there's an author by the name of Stefan Brown, okay? This is a random picture of a dog, okay? notes that a vet, veteran, right, or not veteran, a veterinarian, a vet, okay, I'll just say that, okay, can learn a lot about a dog or a dog's owner he has never met just by looking at the dog, right? So if you think about it, when you see a dog that doesn't do well with people, what can you assume about the owner, okay? Maybe the dog was isolated, maybe the dog was mistreated, right? Maybe the dog just didn't grow up with interaction, right? If you see a dog that is malnourished, that you can see its ribs, what can you assume about the owner? Maybe maybe the dog doesn't get fed, right? Maybe the owner is not feeding the dog. If you see a dog that's extremely aggressive when you try approaching it, what what could that be? What, What could you think of the owner? Maybe it was abused, right, by its previous owner, right? There's many different things that we can assume and that we can see when we observe the characteristics or the nature of a dog, right, about its owner. In the same way, we should be asking this, right? What does the world learn about God, right, when the world watches us, right, his followers on this earth? When the world looks at Christians and looks at the church, what do they learn about God, okay? So the wor- let's do a little bit of a... Um, Greek lesson, okay? So, the root word for grace in the Greek is this word here. What is it? Okay, it's pronounced actually like, no, nice try. Haris, haris, right? It's the C is silent, right? And you find a verb that's related to this root word saying, I rejoice or I am glad, okay? If grace is found Is something that's found in our churches, and if grace should reciprocate the ideal of I rejoice or I am glad, okay, rejoicing or gladness, then clearly there must be a problem, right? Because I feel like rejoicing and gladness is not the first thing that a lot of people in this world today will look at the church and say, right? When people look at the church uh, what are some of the things that, that they kind of think of, or what do they bring up? Some people will say, oh, the church, corruption, oh, fornication, lust. Maybe if you think of history, the Crusades, right? Wars, like things like that. People look at the church as a place to go after, right? We clean up our act, not before. People see the church as a place where they have to act holy in order to fit in. The world views the church as a place where people come to be judged and not shown grace. Uh, a few weeks ago with the youth, we went out and did a survey of our community, and the other groups that went out to, to our neighbors, it was really great, but the groups that kind of went with me on the other side of the street, a lot of people had a very negative view of the church. Oh, church is not accepting. Oh, the church doesn't, doesn't like people, or the church is just not for me. Like, I grew up in it, but no thanks, right? And so it makes you wonder, right? There must be something wrong, Right? If the church is a place to find grace that this world is desperately searching for, what's wrong? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not here to condemn you or to put you down and make everyone feel terrible about like, oh, we're we're not good Christians or we're we're not doing good in our church or our church is a terrible place, right? Don't get me wrong. I love the church. Obviously, I'm a pastor, so I love the church. I love what we do as a church, and I value it so greatly. It's an important part of my life. And obviously, this viewpoint that I'm sharing with you is a viewpoint that people outside of our church will see of our church here, right? And even more specifically, in the community of Eagle Rock, right? I'm not trying to call out individuals. I'm not trying to call out people. So please, please don't feel bad when I say this, right? But I hope that this is an opportunity for each and every one of us today as a part of a community called the church to reevaluate and to reflect rather to see this as an accusation kind of message, right? So there are many churches. Like I said, there are many soup kitchens. There are many homeless shelters, ministries that are filled with God-loving, God-fearing people that share this ideal of grace with the world. But if people looking at our churches Still find resentment. They still find some kind of hatred or some kind of disconnect or discontentment towards our churches. That means there's a weak spot in our church, right? And remember, I'm not just talking about Glenda. I'm talking about a whole bunch of different churches in our world, right? So as many of you know, uh, I have a very strong passion and desire for things like outreach and going out into the community. To reach out and show the community that we really care for them and that we're actually just there for them, right? So I grew up um, the reason why this became such a reality for me is because I grew up in a church that was so focused on the law and ourselves, right? It wasn't until later that I talked about or I found out in the Bible as I was reading and studying and meeting many different kinds of people that the Bible is not about just following the laws and doing the rules and regulations of church, but there's something more special. There's something more special in a relationship that you can have with Jesus that in turns gives you those those qualities, right? And so I realized and discovered after many years of growing up in a church that was so focused on those things, that there is a beauty in the spiritual walk that I have with Christ when I prioritize my relationship with Jesus Christ first. And hopefully you guys understand that this is the message that I constantly try to push to everyone I meet. That it's the relationship you have with Christ first before the action. Right? Now, obviously, and not for the reason that I just stated above, above, but I believe that this world that we live in, there's a world that is searching for grace. But when they come to the church, they find ungrace instead. Religion can sometimes crush people instead of liberate them. And for me, that's such an unfortunate thing, because that is not what religion should be. They don't find the grace that they're searching for when they come to our churches, Instead, if people come to our church, sometimes they find things like shame, the staring eyes, or being ignored by people. They find judgment. Oh, why are you wearing that to church? Or why do you, why do you look like that? You need to change your clothes. That's not acceptable. They find threat of punishment. Oh, if you're not a good Christian, then you're going to burn in hell, right? We, we see these things in our churches. Maybe not Glendale, but maybe Glendale, right? We see these things happening in our churches. And we have to understand and remember that when we are a church that shows this ungrace to the community, that we are no different than the world, right? Because we live in a world and we live in a society that is filled with ungrace, filled with shaming. We live in a dog-eat-dog kind of society, right? Survival of the fittest, look out for number one. If you're not number one, then what are you, right? That's the kind of world that we live in. And I kind of feel like this kind of world that we live in grace is unfortunately choked by these fumes of ungrace, right? So there's a uh, professor in psychology, his name is Louis Smedes, uh, at Fuller Theological Seminary, not too far from here, right? He wrote a book and he talked about this connection between shame and grace, right? And he says in his book, I don't think I have the quote, I don't have the quote, right? He says, guilt was not my problem as I felt in. What I felt most was this glob of unworthiness that I could not tie down to any concrete sin that I was guilty of. What I needed more than pardon was a sense that God simply accepted me, that he owned me, that he held me, that he affirmed me, and he would never let me go, even if he was not impressed with what he had in his hands. Did I lose anyone there? Hey. Okay. So... In this world, we find ungrace, right? And unfortunately, I feel like in our churches today, we replicate what we see in this world. And so in our churches, we also find the same kind of ungrace when we're all searching for simply a sense of God's acceptance for who we are, holding us, taking us in, showing us this thing called grace, right? Okay, so for those that play an instrument, and you guys said it earlier, the picture's not showing up, so it's supposed to be a grace note in that white box, right? But to define what a grace note is, it is an extra note added as an embellishment and not essential to the harmony or melody. So in essence, it's something that is added to make something more pleasing, right? Something that interrupts the monotonous, basic sounds of a melody. That's what a grace note is, right? You musicians are like, yeah... I love adding grace notes to my concertos, right? Okay. I hated grace notes, okay? When you find something, when something happens out of the sudden, out of the blue, when we least expect it, how many of you guys see that as a pleasant surprise? Or maybe you guys are like, oh, that kind of scares me, right? What about when you like, leave something in your pocket? How many of you guys have left something in your pocket and like thrown it in the laundry machine or the washer and then you like, like looking for it all over the house and you can't find it? All the kids like, raise their hand because... They don't do their laundry, right? So, you throw it in the... Your parents are washing your clothes, and then, you know, you're like, oh, where's my headphones? Like, I can't find it, or my AirPods, or whatever. And then you get your, you know, you get your pants back, and then you look, and it's like, oh, there it is. And you see if it works, and it still works. it's like, yes, right? Do you guys ever feel that? Is that me? I don't have AirPods, so... Okay. So, I used to do that all the time with my headphones, right? Earphones. Or you guys... Don't have those anymore, right? So I used to have these earphones all the time, and I used to accidentally wash them all the time. Uh, They still were, I actually still have them. But uh, I used to always wash them, and then I would always be in this frantic panic of looking for my earphones. And then it came to the point when I would find it, it was the best feeling ever. It was a pleasant surprise. I loved it. Now, another story that I have um, when I was well, growing up in Alaska, as many of you guys may know, my parents own a small, like, multi-accommodation business. And one of the things that I always had to do after school was do laundry, right? How many of you guys do your own laundry? Okay, some of you guys do, right? But I hated it. Every day after school, my mom and dad would be like, all right, the rooms are cleaned. It's time to do laundry. So they would pick me up from school, bring me to work, and be like, laundry room. And right? I am like, oh. Gosh, right? So I would go to the laundry room every single day. It's the most time-consuming, most boring job ever. Uh, our laundry room at our facility is kind of like in a basement area, so there's like no Wi-Fi, like no service. And so it's like, you guys are probably like, oh, no, I can't check my like social media, right? So for me, it was like that. I would have to go to this basement room, and I would have to fold tons and tons of towels, tons of sheets, and wash these dirty sheets, towels, pillowcases, comforters, everything, you name it, right? It was a very depressing, very sad atmosphere and environment. And I dreaded it every day. But there was a day when I started, when I went to go do laundry, it was like a terrible day. I was not feeling good. I was just like, I want to just go home and just, you know, go on the computer and do things. And I was going through each of the sheets. And I remember as I was shaking out one of the sheets, $300 just dropped to the ground. What do you think I did with it? Yeah, of course I kept it, right? $300. And... Ever since that time, it was such a pleasant surprise. I was so happy that after school, my parents would be like, time for the laundry room. and be like, I'm going. Take me to the laundry room, right? Because it was such a pleasant surprise to find a random $300 just fall out of those sheets, right? So, unearned gifts and unexpected pleasures bring the most joy. Grace happens, and it's such a wonderful, pleasant surprise. Grace is unearned and unexpected. But that's what makes it better and so much more enjoyable. We live in a world that needs grace. I keep saying this, and hopefully you guys, like this gets pounded into your head, right? We need grace to make things better and so much more enjoyable in this world we live in. There's an author by the name of Peter Grieve, um, and he wrote a memoir of his life, and he uh, contracted leprosy. You guys know what leprosy is, right? It's that infection, you read it in the Bible. It's an infectious disease that causes severe disfiguring skin sores and nerve damage in the arms, legs, all over the body. Um, And he contracted it when he was in India. So he had gone to India and he returned back to England and he was half blind and half paralyzed by this disease. So it like totally consumed and ruined his life. He lived, he had to, he didn't have a choice. He had to live at a place that was run by a group of Angelican sisters, right? And Peter, he was unable to work, he was unable to do anything in society, so he simply became an outcast, right? Um, And of course, if this were to happen to anyone, if you became an outcast to society, uh, Peter, as he described in his story, he became very bitter, he became very angry to the world, he became angry at God, and he became very suicidal. He thought of ways to escape uh, this institution, and he wanted to bail, but he realized that even if he did, where could he have gone, right? He was very miserable, and you can imagine. And one morning, uncharacteristically of him, he writes that, you know, he had this curiosity to go explore the, the grounds. And so he went out for a morning hike, and he heard this buzzing noise as he was going on this hike, And he decided to kind of follow that sound. He didn't know what it was. He didn't know where he was. Uh, So he decided to simply go and find that sound. And as he was going, he followed the noise into a lead to a chapel, a small chapel in the middle of the woods, where there were were the sisters that were caring for him, and they were there praying. And as he observed and he listened closely, and he walked a little bit closer, he noticed that they were praying for names that were written on the wall. And as he searched that wall, and he looked carefully, upon further investigation, he looked and he saw his own name. And he heard them praying for him. And somehow that event, that part of his life, that experience of connection, of linking of being wanted and belonged, changed the course of his life. It was in that moment that this guy experienced something called grace, right? Religious faith, despite all of its problems and issues of showing more ungrace than grace, lives on and continues to be uh, because we sense this strong beauty of the gift that is undeserved, that comes at unexpected moments, Right? There's a reason why that we still have these communities, because there is hope, right? That's why there's this sense of hurt. Maybe you here today feel this sense of hurt or hatred towards the church or whatever it may be, but there's this kind of urge, like, man, but I don't know where to go. Like, I think it's the church. There's something about the church that there's it's there. It's lingering. It's interesting because that's a part of our human nature. God created us to be that way, right? That even though there's this sense of hurt and this sense of hatred, there's the urge to stick around and stay for more. Right? because we refuse to believe that our lives of guilt and shame, they lead ultimately to nothing. We refuse, and we live by this hope, right? and we hope again and again for a place that runs by different rules, a place that's different than the consequences of guilt and shame created by the world that we live in. Philip Yancey says this, and I love this quote that he says. He says, we grow up hungry for love, and in ways so deep as to remain unexpressed, we long for our maker to love us. That's how we were created. We want to be loved, right, by a creator, and we are hungry for that. Sometimes, or actually many times, uh, grace is introduced to us in forms of words of faith, you know, like things like be filled with God's grace, or like God's love, mercy, and grace fill our lives, right? God's grace is extended to you. We say this in words, but the meaning of grace is glossed over so much to the point that it's leached of its meaning as no longer trustworthy. And maybe you've grown up in a church or maybe in a background or a community that the word grace has been misused in a sense and used to portray a different kind of thing. But I believe that we can experience grace in many different ways. So as many of you guys know, before I entered into ministry, um, or maybe you don't know, Uh, I used to be a music major uh, back up in Alaska. And music was a huge thing for me. I was crazy about making music. I started making music when I was in high school, and I fell in love with it because I could write songs, and no one would know the songs. And even if I made a mistake, no one would know it was a mistake. So that's why I loved making my own music. I would write songs, sing songs, create things, and call it my own. It was my getaway, it was my escape from reality. It was escape from the pressures of the world, from work, from family. It was a time for me to be alone. It was a time for me to make something that belonged to me. In the moment of creating music, I would stay up to like five in the morning. There was this confusing sense of beauty at five in the morning, this aura of wonder and amazement when you listen to the music that you had just created. And to me, I had experienced grace. In the same way, when I was growing up in Alaska, one of the things that I would always do is experience the nature, right? Nature, for me, evokes some kind of like profound feeling inside, right? I love it. And I would go to this particular location behind the airport. So I lived kind of close to the airport. But behind the airport, there would be a place where you could see the planes flying off into the sunset. And you could see the mountain on the horizon and the clouds and the snow-capped mountains. It was such a beautiful feeling that I would remember, like, sitting there until the sun would go down. I would look at the stars and be amazed by the beauty of this world, right? And I would sense this joy and happiness. I experienced grace. And I've also fallen in love. How many of you guys have fallen in love? Maybe you haven't. Okay, don't raise your hands, okay? But I'm sure one day, if you haven't, you will experience love. You will fall in love, um, and as I've gotten older, I've, it's really changed like what love is. You know that expression, head over heels? That's like literally me all the time, right? Uh, there's disagreements, there's arguments, there's disputes, yes. But even if these things happen, there is this falling in love kind of moment, right? When I found myself falling in love, I wasn't necessarily searching for it. I wasn't expecting it. It came out of nowhere and it struck me in the face, okay? And I was madly unprepared for it. It was a sudden moment that my heart suddenly seemed too big for my chest, right? I experienced grace. You see, I strongly believe that these things that I was experiencing is something that one would call uncommon grace, if we follow the definition that I shared earlier. That's this unexpected kind of pleasant surprise grace, right? It's odd. It's weird. And it's kind of weird, because you experience these moments, and there's not one particular person you can go to and be like, oh, thank you for this pleasant experience, right? It just doesn't work that way. But I believe that this is more than just common grace, right? C.S. Lewis called it drippings of grace, and that's how I like to define grace. Drippings of grace, uh, C.S. Lewis describes it as, I don't have it, um, for it's what awakens deep longing for a scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, and news from a country we have never yet visited. You see, grace is everywhere. Okay? It's like the lens that we fail to notice because we're looking right through them. Through the things in my life, through music, through nature, through falling in love, I believe that God gave me eyes to see the grace was around me. And because there are these little drippings of grace, what does that imply? That implies that there has to be a source of that grace, right? There's a place where we can truly experience and get to know the grace better. And for me, I strongly believe that the source of grace can be found in, but it's not limited to our church. Of course, the source of grace can come from anything. I'm not trying to put your limitation on God, and I don't think God limits himself in where he can Put his source of grace, right? It doesn't have to be the church, but I believe that God intended our church, the church to be one of the sources of grace to this world. Um, C.S. Lewis, during a convention that he once uh, um, went to, uh, comparing different religions and whatnot, they came together around the world and they debated what was unique. Uh, to the Christian faith. And they started to eliminate different possibilities, right? Incarnation, no, obviously not, right? Uh, other religions, they had different goals, they had different objectives, right? Different versions of God appearing in human form. Resurrection, you know, uh, other religions have returns from people coming from the dead. But C.S. Lewis, he, he simply responds by saying that the difference, the thing that's so unique to the Christian church, to Christianity, is this ideal of grace, Right? And I want you to think about it. This ideal of God, God's love coming down to us, right? free of charge, with no strings attached, goes against every instinct of humanity. Right? Buddhists have the Eightfold Path. Hindus have uh, karma. The Jews have this Jewish covenant. Muslims have the code of law. Right? Each of these things offers a way to earn approval. Right? But it's only Christianity that dares only Christianity that dares to say that God's love is an unconditional love, meaning literally there are no strings attached and it's simply given to you. It's interesting because Jesus talks a lot about grace. He talks about it throughout his ministry. I like to say that's one of his like passion topics. If Jesus was a preacher and we were to ask him, like, what do you like to talk about? He would say grace, right? But what's funny is, is Jesus doesn't really define or analyze grace. And there's a reason why I didn't do that for you yet either. Because I believe that grace as spoken by Jesus, was spoken through parables. So when we analyze the parables of Jesus, we can find the lessons of what grace really looks like. And there's three parables that I really, really believe that Jesus, like, amplifies grace. And it's the lost coin, it's the lost sheep, and the lost son. We're not going to go through them right now, but as you guys know, the lost coin, you know, ten coins, one went missing, and this lady's, you know, frantically searching for this coin, and she finds it. It's a very pleasant surprise. It's very joyous. It's filled with joy. For that one coin, right? The lost sheep. I mean you guys know the story of the lost sheep. What happens? Sheep rolls off, right? Oh, I have ninety-nine sheep. Why do I need another one? No. He goes out and searches for this one sheep until he finds it and brings it back home. The lost son, by far my favorite parable. And you guys should know, like, I'm obsessed with this parable. This is my favorite parable, right? His rebellious son. You know, takes the inheritance, runs off. He finds himself in the pig pen of life, and he realizes he wants to go back to the love of the father. And the father accepts him with no, no strings attached. Come back home. Let's have a feast. Let's have a celebration. Right? That's grace. Okay. But through these parables, a lot of the times we like look at it and say, "This is how you need to live. Live diligently." Like don't take your father's inheritance, right? We 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 take these parables and sometimes we just look at it as ways that Jesus is telling us how to live our lives. But I believe Jesus was telling us more about how to correct our incorrect notion and understanding of who God is and what God's love is and what grace really looks like. I really believe that. Think about it. When you ask a Christian, okay, what does it take to get to heaven? What is it that I have to do? And the short answer, if everyone were to write, like, a really short answer, I think most of the time people would say, like, be good. Or, like, you need to live a good Christian life. You need to reflect God. But in reality, it's not simply about being good. Okay? It's about simply being able to cry for help. Jesus' parables contradict this ideal of just being good, right? Even one of Jesus' last acts before um, him being crucified, the thief that hangs on the cross, think about it. That man hanging on the cross will never have a Bible study. That man that was hanging on the cross would never attend church, would never be able to repay the sins that he had committed to people in his community. He simply reached out to Jesus and said, remember me, right? And Jesus forgave the man, and not only that, okay, Jesus promises him the kingdom, right? It's a crazy reminder that grace does not depend on what we have done for God, but rather what God has done for us. Let me say that one more time. Grace does not depend on what we have done for God, but rather what God has done for us. Think about that, right? But then this brings up the question, doesn't that make grace seem a little unfair? is that kind of unfair? right? The thief did nothing, right? He did absolutely nothing. He lived a terrible life. He didn't do any good in his life. Well, I mean, we don't know that, but we assume that if he was being crucified, he lived a terrible life, right? He was literally scared out of his mind when he reached out to Jesus in his dying moments. But what about those that follow Jesus faithfully to the end, that live good lives, that live great lives, that are great Christians? It seems like grace is so unfair. Look at the people that God uses, right? Why would God use Jacob? the liar, over a hard-working, diligent man named Esau. Think about that. Why would a lame shepherd boy named David, why would he be the king of Israel? Why would God use a guy like that? Why would God use the gift of wisdom on Solomon, this king of adultery? Think about it. We find the scandal of grace through each of these Old Testament stories, and it's unfair. Frankly, it doesn't make sense. And I want to look at the, the scripture reading that we read today. Um, it's the parable uh, that tackles this scandal of grace head on, right? And it's the parable of the worker and their grossly uh, unfair paychecks. I don't know if it's going to load. It might load. So it's found Matthew 21 to 15. I'll read it super duper quick uh, because it's getting warm and people are falling asleep. So, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed, now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out to his vineyard and he went out about the third hour and saw standing idle in the marketplace. Okay? And said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, uh, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give; I'll give them all their wages, beginning uh, with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who has borne the burden in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I'm not doing you wrong, right? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what it is yours and go your way. I wish to give you, uh, I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. It is not, lo- is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things, or is your eye evil because I am good? The story makes absolutely no economical sense. If you study economics or whatever. <laughs> I think this is the point, the intent of the parable that Jesus was telling. Because it's a parable about grace, and grace is not calculated in a day's wage. We simply receive the gift of grace from God, not something that we have to work for, not something that we have to earn or deserve. We simply receive. Many Christians look at this parable. they like to identify themselves as the workers that put in a full days of work, right? Rather than the last minute add-on workers that come in towards the end of the day. But when we start to do this, okay, we miss out on this beautiful opportunity to truly understand the meaning of this parable, that God gives gifts, not wages. None of us get paid according to our works. None of us come close to satisfying God's requirements for a perfect life. Now, I know you're probably thinking, like, what what is the order to this entire sermon? Like, what what is Pastor Tim trying to say? What is he trying to share, right? And like I said, I wanted to define grace for you today. Um, But I didn't want to simply just give you the definition. I wanted to share you instances, things in the Bible, and what grace can actually look like. And I haven't defined it. I've given lots of examples and stories, like I said. Uh, But to wrap up today, I want to share this definition with you. And I think it's such a beautiful way to define what grace is. And we'll repeat this over and over throughout the series that I share. Grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. And grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love That is such a beautiful statement. And if we understand grace like this, then the way that we reflect grace to our world in our churches will radically change. I want to challenge you as I share this message of grace to the things that we do, the things that we say, the things that we think, whatever it may be, to really take a time to reflect and see. How do I understand grace? Do I really think of grace as a gift? Or do I really think of grace as something that I simply have to work for? That I have to live to a certain standard in order to receive this love from God? If it's that, then I want you to consider this as your new definition of grace. And as we continue to explore, I pray that grace radically transforms your life. Radically transforms the world around us. And radically transforms this church to be a place where we can show that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful for this lesson of grace, the scandal of grace that you have brought to this world, that we are not deserving to receive this, yet you pour this out to each and every one of us. Lord, as we... Show grace to a world that seeks it. Lord, I pray that we can rightly and fairly represent who you are through our actions, through the words that we say, through the things that we do. Lord, please use us as a broken vessel to show this grace to a world that needs it. Be with us now, for we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray and we all say.